Before we begin, let me take a moment to tell you what you're in for. The story I'm about to share with you comes from the universe of the Traveler's Gate trilogy by Will White, and only if you've read those books do you have the full training necessary to handle information from that realm. This story was previously released as part of the Traveler's Gate Chronicles short story collection, so if you've read that already, I have good news. You've already survived exposure to its incredible power. The only difference today is that you'll be experiencing it with your ears instead of your eyes. If you haven't read the Traveler's Gate books, you may not be able to harness the full energy of these stories. You can try if you'd like, but side effects of unqualified exposure may include confusion, lack of comprehension, or spontaneous combustion. If you're the kind of person that wants to prepare yourself and read the books first, you can find House of Blades, the first book in the Traveler's Gate trilogy, on Amazon or Audible. It will give you the guidance necessary to comprehend these stories without bleeding from the ears. However, if you know that you are unqualified and have decided that this story isn't for you, then we understand and wish you a fond farewell. May we meet again someday, you beautiful stranger. For those of you still with me, we're going together into the pieces of the Traveler's Gate world that weren't covered in the main books, unexplored and unknown corners of the territories. We're going off the edges of the map, and here, there be dragons. The Lightning Wastes Valor is an easy virtue to admire. We make heroes out of those who charge recklessly against superior forces. We idolize the warriors who risk their lives to save the innocent, who stand firm in the face of certain death. Truly, bravery and courage are fine qualities. But travelers of Endros can take it too far. Elysian Book of Virtues, Chapter 7 Gold 358th year of the Damascan calendar, first year in the reign of Queen Leah I, nine days until autumn's end. Queen Leah I slumped over onto her camp desk. The thing almost collapsed. It was made to fold and pack up for easy marching, and she'd been using it as a permanent fixture for months now. She was lucky it had lasted this long without buckling under her. She kept her face pressed against the desk. So what if the desk broke, sending her crashing to the ground? She couldn't bring herself to care. She had other things to worry about, such as her meeting with the Nine Overlords, which had just ended. Could that have possibly gone any worse, she asked, into the desk. Indiriel's cloak rustled and a chair creaked. He must have sat down. An incarnation didn't blast through the tent and kill us all. In that light, I'd say we came out ahead. Leah raised her head, which took ten times as much effort as normal. They're not listening to me anymore, Indiriel. They're not concerned about the nation. They can hardly see past their own cities. Indiriel's easy smile never left his face, blinding white against his tan villager's skin. It was hard to put a dent in his optimism. You're young, and they barely know you. Give them time. Besides, the nation's going through a crisis. Of course they're going to look to their own realms first. He had taken his black cloak off, draping it over the back of his chair, leaving his chain-wrapped arms bare. She had rarely seen the shadow chains that marked his arms so short. They stopped above his wrists. He wore confidence like a second cloak, solid and dependable even in a crisis. He had to be as old as her father, old enough to be her grandfather, in fact but he looked twenty years younger. The benefits of Valenhall, she was sure. Leah glanced over at the table next to her. It was much sturdier than her portable writing desk and covered with a giant map of the kingdom of Damasca. The map was almost lost beneath a chaos of pins and buttons in every color imaginable. The release of the incarnations had worked on the nation like a kick on an anthill. Cities were practically trading refugees as their citizens fled one citadel for perceived safety in another. Thousands of them were here, camped under her command, less than five miles from the sealed city of Cana. It's not what they're doing that bothers me, Leah said. Look at what they're not doing. None of them bothered to address the Endros incarnation, not even Overlord Fiora. Only a few days ago, they had received word that the Endros incarnation had burst forth from its prison beneath the city of Eltarim. It had left the city largely untouched for some reason, blasting off into the wilderness to terrorize ordinary merchants and a handful of small villagers. 
Indiriel folded his arms. Overlord Fiora rules Eltarim, but the city and the surrounding lands are practically unharmed. She's no Endros traveler. She should have been, Leah said. Her father had appointed Fiora Toranus to guard the Endros incarnation, even though she was an Avernus traveler. In every other case, the overlord traveled the same territory as the incarnation he or she guarded. Fiora was the sole exception, and at the moment, Leah was having trouble recalling why. In any case, that's no excuse for shirking her duty. You think she may have a personal reason for refusing to listen to you? And Diriel's grin got a little wider. Maybe you shouldn't have trapped her brother alive. Lysander Tyrannus, Feora's brother, had been another overlord, before she sealed him into a block of solid crystal for treachery and attempted regicide. Leah glared at the overlord of Cana. I'll let him out at any time, if you think she won't mind me executing him instead. Indiriel put on a thoughtful look. No, no, I don't think that would win you any friends. Besides, she has a point. She's got enough trouble keeping her people from panicking. She doesn't need to hunt an incarnation down. What would she do if she found it? Leah had to resist raising a hand to her pounding head. She always got a headache after meeting the overlords. Instead, she scooped up a report detailing the number of travelers under her direct command. How many Endros travelers did you have working for you? She asked. Six. Can you find any of them now? I'd bet I can tell you exactly where they are. Enderiel craned his neck and looked meaningfully out the flap of the tent. A few miles distant, but still clearly visible, the city of Cana glowed like a cherry-red sunset. The whole capital, from wall to wall, was covered by a shining dome of scarlet light, sealed by the power of the Ragnaros Incarnation. No one had been in or out since the Incarnations first escaped over three months before. Leah found herself wondering whether any of the Endros travelers were still alive, whether anyone was alive under the dome, or if their blood, minds, and souls had been used as fuel for the weapons of the Crimson Vault. I don't see any on the list. Leah said, scanning it quickly. Indiriel leaned forward, shuffling through her papers. I think there's... Ah, yes, here we go. One of Cana's weather workers made it out before the city was sealed. Leah took the paper he offered her. An Endros weather worker? I never knew Cana had one. The weather in Cana's pretty mild, so she had an easier job than most, but she warded off her fair share of storms. She stared at the one single name under the Endros column, as though she could make it multiply by sheer force of will. Where are the others? Even counting the people trapped in Cana, we should have seen some Endros travelers from other cities. Indiriel hesitated for a moment before speaking. This is hearsay, you understand, but I've talked to the other overlords. They're all missing Endros travelers. I'd go so far as to say we're missing maybe half of all the Endros-trained travelers in the kingdom. Where did they go? Leah asked. Her tone sounded much more harsh than she meant. She sounded like she was going to track them down and strangle them all one by one. Then again, that might not be such a bad plan. With the king dead and the incarnations loose and no overlord specifically looking over their shoulder, where do you think they went? Enderiel leaned over the map. Some of them probably deserted, I'm sure some of them started following their incarnation around, and I'd bet most of them took the excuse to move to their territory. You know how Endros is. Endros itself was a blasted landscape, half storm-racked desert and half deadly jungle. Endros travelers were the only ones crazy enough to try and live there. Leah stood up, taking care not to put any weight on the unsteady desk. Since the overlords are unwilling to do their jobs, I'll have to go myself. And Ariel pulled his cloak off the chair. I figured as much. Let's go get that weather worker. She can guide us. She placed a hand on his shoulder. Not us, Indiriel. I have a different assignment for you. The overlord's eyebrows raised. You can't go without a bodyguard. I need you to hunt down the Endros incarnation. Kill it if you can, but if not, drive it away from the populated areas. He nodded thoughtfully. Huh, I guess there's no one else around to do the job. Very well, my queen, I live to serve. He gave her a little cloak-flourishing bow. I will leave as soon as you select another bodyguard. I hardly need one. 
No one is safe alone, Indiriel said, for once completely serious, particularly not with the incarnations around. And no matter how confident you are, you'll be surrounded by Endross travelers in their own territory. They're Damascan citizens, she pointed out. They should obey her without question. They're Endros, he said simply. You need a bodyguard. I haven't seen Kai in weeks. Leah shuddered at the thought of spending even one day with Kai. She had never gotten over her distaste for the man. He was simply eerie. And dinners in the south, leading refugees away from the Asphodel incarnation. If I could find Catherine, I could hire her to guard you. But that would take a few days. Indiriel's grin was back, in full force. There's one Valenhall traveler left. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Valenhall traveler. Would you prefer one Valenhall or four Tartarus? Bringing one guide and one bodyguard meant she was confident enough in her royal commands that she didn't need to lean on force. Bringing one guide and four bodyguards meant she felt she needed protection, because she didn't expect the Endros travelers to obey her. They would see it as a sign of weakness. One. Excellent, Indiriel said, looking entirely too pleased with himself. I'll open a gate. Indiriel left his gate open, then walked out of the tent. She called after him, but he didn't respond, which was typical. Once the overlord had a new goal in his sights, he tended to head straight for it, blocking out everything else. She turned from the portal and faced the entry room of the House of Blades. It looked like nothing so much as a sitting room for a wealthy noble, a wealthy noble from a century past. It was a little dim, and the swords, hung in wooden racks on the walls, left a little to be desired as far as decor went. Ornately carved tables sat here and there in the room, covered by books and surrounded by plush, red-cushioned chairs. Against one wall sat a comfortable-looking red sofa, though she thought she could hear a soft growling coming from that direction. It sounded like a badger stuck beneath the cushions. Between the ostentatious furniture and the soft lighting, the scene almost looked like it belonged in an attic covered in dust. She ran a hand along the top of a desk. It was spotlessly clean and had been recently polished. She'd only entered Valenhall a handful of times before, and she had never caught a glimpse of anyone doing housework. Perhaps the house cleaned itself. Or maybe this was how they trained travelers, by forcing them to dust the furniture. Excuse me, she called into the hallway, which extended out beyond the entry hall. Is anyone there? She felt distinctly uncomfortable calling into a foreign territory like this. Who knew what sort of creatures she might awaken? Then again, she had never seen anything here that looked remotely dangerous. Indiriel and Simon always spoke as though the house was the most deadly territory of all the eleven known to man, but she had yet to see why. It seemed quite comfortable to her. Maybe they were spoiled. When no one responded, she marched forward into the hall. Doors stretched down the hallway on either side. To her left was a door with a single small circle. To her right, a door with a huge circle orbited by three small ones. Some way of distinguishing the bedrooms, she supposed, but she had never gotten a look inside one of these doors. She had no idea which one was Simon's. Maybe she should knock on each one separately and see if someone answered. As she raised her hand to knock, the door on the far left opened and a woman stepped out. She had a pair of goggles pushed up her forehead, tied around the back of her head with a leather strap. They looked almost like Avernus flight goggles. Her long auburn hair was bound back with a rag, and she wiped her hands with a similar scrap of cloth. She looked like a miner's wife more than anything else, though Leah knew she had some job here in Valenhall. She wasn't entirely clear what that job was, no more than she could remember this woman's name. Her eyes grew wide, and she immediately fell to her knees, prostrating herself on the ground. Your Highness, we were not expecting you. You may stand, Leah said wearily. She got sick of having to order people to stand. Wouldn't it be much easier if they stood by default and then she could order them to kneel if that was what she wanted? I'm looking for Simon. Of course, my queen, of course, the woman said, scrambling to her feet. She tried to smooth her hair, realized she held a dirty rag in her hand, and stuffed it into her pocket. I'll have to wake him up, though. He's been fighting like a madman. Spends hours deep in the house, comes back bleeding so badly he can barely make it into the pool. The imps are going to get him one of these days. I swear they are. Maybe you can talk him out of it, Highness. Perhaps, 
Leah said. Imps? She wasn't sure what the imps were, though she had heard about Valenhall's healing pool. Which room is his? The woman hesitated. I'm sorry, your highness, but it might be better if you waited in the entry hall. I'll fetch him for you. I've woken him up before, Leah said, and the other woman frowned. Have you now? I had wondered why. Well, you're that Leah, are you? Leah cleared her throat. Yes, I probably am. The woman nodded as though she had figured out the solution to a difficult puzzle. Well, now, that explains some things. I always think I know that boy better than I do, but he never talks about himself. He always makes you ask. She chuckled, and Leah laughed politely along. At exactly which point did I lose control of this conversation? So, which bedroom? She said, trying to steer the woman back on track. Ah, yes, this way. I know you said you can handle it, but you might want to stay in the doorway. Handle what? Leah thought. But the other woman was pushing on one of the doors, the one marked by a large half circle above two smaller circles. Inside was a bedroom as well appointed, if not as large, as any of the rooms in the royal palace in Cana. The bed was a huge four-poster with a bedside table on each side and a mirror against one wall next to a wash basin. The only aspects of the room Leah didn't understand were the shelves built into the far wall, so they were the first thing anyone in the bed would see upon waking. The shelves were covered in dolls. Dozens of little girls' dolls, wearing every sort of clothing, from a villager's brown shirt and pants to long, flowing court dresses. They had blonde hair and black and white and red and every color Leah had ever seen on a human being. And they all stared with painted eyes straight at Leah, as though they had been positioned that way all along. I see the dolls are doing well. Leah said. She knew how useful they could be, but she still couldn't help a little shudder when she saw them looking at her. Does he have to keep them right there in the bedroom? The other woman shrugged. It's Kai's thing, I think. I'm sure he put the shelves there. Anyway, I don't question travelers. Simon lay, shirtless and sound asleep, amid the cloud-soft whiteness of the bed's blankets. He was all tangled up in a sheet, as though he had tried to escape, and the sheet had grabbed him and pulled him back. She always thought of him as small, and he would never be much more than her height, but he had put on a surprising amount of muscle in such a short time. If she hadn't known better, she would never have recognized him as the scrawny boy from Miria. Instead of walking over to shake him, as Leah had expected, the woman cuffed her hands to her mouth. Simon, she yelled, company. Leah barely saw it happen. First, Simon was tangled up in the sheet so thoroughly that she was sure it would take a seamstress and a pair of gardening shears to get him loose. Then he was across the room, inches in front of her, with a knife in his fist. The gleaming point of the steel pressed against her collarbone. She choked down a scream and stepped back, proud of herself for not falling over backwards. What do you think you're- She demanded, but she stopped herself. Standing in front of her, Simon woke up. He blinked a few times, let out a little half-yawn, and noticed her for the first time. Leah, why are you- He saw the knife in his own hand, and his fingers jerked open. The knife clattered to the floor. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't- They try to kill me in my sleep. All the time, it's a habit. I'm sorry. Are you hurt? Leah shook her head, too numb to speak. He had almost stabbed her in the chest before he even realized who she was. Wait, who exactly tries to kill him in his sleep? Simon frowned at the other woman. Mistress Agnes, how did you get in here? Like this, Mistress Agnes said, miming twisting a doorknob and pushing the door open. She watched the two of them with a little amused smile on her face. You should keep it locked, and I told you to stand back, your highness. So you did, Leah said sourly. Simon, I need someone to guard me while I go to Endros. We'll be in a territory where it rains lightning and will probably be surrounded by dozens of travelers that want to kill me. I need someone to keep me alive and unharmed until we get back. Will you do it? Simon glanced down at himself, then at her, and his face flushed. Oh, let me get a shirt on first. That would be best. It took Simon a few minutes to get ready, but he eventually emerged, wearing his hooded black cloak and carrying a doll. This one wore her long red hair tied back in a tail, and her outfit was nothing more than a plain villager's shirt and pants. 
He held the doll in the crook of his arm as he followed Leah out through Indirial's gate. Come back and visit us, your highness, Mistress Agnes called from back in the entry hall. Leah gave a noncommittal smile and wave. She was actually a little wary of the other woman, who seemed to swing between utter deference and a sort of motherly concern. It was disconcerting. Helena Rode, the Endross weather worker, waited for them on the other side of the gate. She was perhaps forty years old, with the bright green eyes characteristic of some Western Isles ancestry. Her sandy blonde hair was cut close to her scalp, and she had a horizontal scar across one cheek. Most noticeably, she had a weapon strapped to every inch of her clothes. An unstrung crossbow hung from a harness at her right hip, opposite a one-handed infantry sword. She had buckled a dozen knives across her chest, on the outsides of her thighs, and on the insides of her boots. The hilts of two long knives, almost swords, poked up from her shoulders. Thanks to the time fluctuation between Valenhall and the outside world, Leah had only been gone two or three minutes, but during that period, Indiriol had evidently found Helena in the camp and gotten her to the command tent. The man did work fast. I thought she was a weather worker, not a walking armory, Leah thought, but she kept it to herself. Helena probably expected anyone she came across to mention the weapons, so Leah would maintain the upper hand by saying nothing about them. Helena Rode, I presume, Leah said. Helena tilted up a silver flask and took a drink before answering. You need someone to show you around the wastes, am I right? That's correct. Fifteen years I've been working in Cana, keeping the worst of the storms away. Ten years before that, I was guiding merchant caravans across Endros, trying to keep them alive. I'll get you wherever you want to go. She flashed Leah a grin that looked more like a lioness baring her teeth than a smile. Leah nodded as though she had expected no less. You'll do perfectly then. I need the Endros travelers of Damasca to stop ignoring their duties and return to their posts. I don't know who can make that happen, but you will take us to them, and I will deliver my commands in person. Helena took another swig, arching an eyebrow at Leah over her silver flask. Is there a reason you're going yourself, your majesty? No offense meant, but wouldn't you be better off sending a lackey? I can delegate anything except my duties as a traveler of Ragnaris, Leah said, half-truthfully. The full truth was that she needed as much authority here as possible, and she didn't have an overlord to represent her in this matter. It would be easier and faster to do it herself. You think this will involve Ragnaris? The Endross traveler sounded uneasy. It will if our friends don't cooperate. In reality, if Leah had to rely on her crown to force the travelers to obey her, she would have already lost. She was hoping to do this without using any of her Ragnaris weapons. Not that she wouldn't bring them anyway, of course. Helena nodded to Simon, her first time acknowledging his presence. And him, I thought you were going to get a bodyguard. He had quietly walked over to the map table and sat his red-headed doll next to him. They appeared to be studying it together. My bodyguard. That's right. Not to overstep my bounds, but wouldn't it be better to bring another traveler? Between you and me, I think we can handle most trouble, but I don't think a boy with a sword is going to do us any favors. I am a traveler, actually, Simon said. He sounded totally calm, but Leah knew he must have been irritated, or he would have left the question for her to answer. Oh, really? Which territory? Simon met her eyes. Valenhall. Helena shot Leah a puzzled look. Where? Oh, of course. Sometimes Leah forgot Valenhall's existence wasn't common knowledge. The same territory as Overlord Indiriel, Helena. Overlord Indiriel? Really? I always thought he was a peculiar Tartarus. She shrugged. Well, the older you get, the more you learn, I guess. Now then, boy, what's with the doll? Simon looked down at the doll and back up, and Leah got the impression they were having a silent conversation. She wants me to tell you her name's Rebecca, he said. He winced and added, she would also like me to punch you in the face. Helena grinned her lion's grin once more. I'd like to see that play out, Valenhall. Leah stepped in between them and gave Simon a cold look. He shrugged and pointed to Rebecca, who seemed to have the slightest glare on her face. That's enough. Helena, can you take us where we need to go? The Endros traveler buckled her flask next to her crossbow and spread her hands. I can take you to the main outpost. It's not hard to get there from here, actually. Short walk. I don't know who's in charge over there, but whoever it is, you'll probably have to fight them. Excellent, Leah said. 
That's why I brought a bodyguard. Lead the way. Helena swept out of the tent. Leah followed, and Simon walked behind them, muttering softly to his doll. Leah learned something that day. She learned that she hated Endros. It had taken them an hour of walking to reach the place where Helena had decided to open a gate. Leah wasn't sure whether this was simply the closest place she could open a passable gate, or whether this took them somehow closer to the main Endros outpost. It was supposed to be accessible from Cana, and they had walked directly away from Cana to open the gate. But distance could be strange in territories. An hour's walking west in the outside world could put them two hours' distance east in a territory, or a thousand feet up. It all depended on the territory and the nature of the gate. In this case, Helena stopped by a cactus and an unremarkable stretch of scrub grass and announced, This is it. She spread her hands, opening one of the swirling, violent thunderstorms that Endros travelers used as gates. It hung horizontally in the air, a lightning-filled shadow roughly in the shape of a round doorway. Helena stepped through without hesitation, obviously trusting the other two to follow. Simon waited for Leah to move first. Leah glanced at him, hoping to see him nervous so she could offer support and thus make herself feel better. No luck. Simon looked back at her curiously. He even raised his eyebrows, silently asking if she needed anything. She shook her head and stepped through the gate. Back in Myria, she had so often wished Simon would act with a little confidence. Now, she wanted the old Simon back, if only to have someone around who was more uncertain than she was. She stepped through and had an instant to observe the landscape, a flat, cracked wasteland of yellow sand stretching as far as she could see beneath an overcast sky before something hit her ribs like a kick from a horse. She stumbled backwards, caught a glimpse of a blinding flash in the sky, heard thunder loud enough to tear her ears apart, and slammed into the unyielding ground. Her breath whooshed out of her, and she gasped for air, clawing for the weapon she dropped. Phew, Helena said, grinning into Leah's face from two inches away. Close one. It all came together. Helena had tackled Leah out of the way. Of what? Leah rolled to one side to see a smoking black scorch mark on the sand for an instant, before the wind whisked the char away, leaving clean sand in its wake. Surely that would have missed me, Leah said. The bolt looked like it would have hit several paces off the mark. Lightning works a bit different here than it does in the other world, Helena said, pushing herself to her feet. But it still carries along the ground. It doesn't have to hit you straight on. Standing too close still gets you. The other woman was practically shouting, both over the ring in Leah's ears and over the constant howling of the wind. The storm caught strands of Leah's hair and flailed her face with them, forcing her to constantly hold her hair back. She hadn't even managed to stand up yet. Simon walked through the gate a moment later. Leah was on the ground, covered in sand, trying to keep her face clear of her own hair. There was a scorch mark two paces from the gate. Helena was still brushing sand from her pants. What happened? he asked, in all innocence. Never mind, Leah called over the wind. The sky above her turned from a cool gray to jet black in little more than an instant. She scrambled out of the way, imagining another lightning bolt blasting her to smoking pieces, but Helena didn't move. An instant later, a waterfall of rain blasted Leah, soaking her to the bone in a second. Her crimson dress, formal attire for when she was acting as queen, deflated, fabric clinging to suddenly ice-cold skin. Her hair went from flapping around her face to hanging in front of her eyes in a sodden mask. Then, after only a moment, the rain stopped. Leah peeled hair back from her eyes to see Simon and Helena still standing in the exact same places, dry as the cracked sand. Helena shrugged. That happens, she said. She started to trudge across the desert. Leah couldn't remember the last time she had felt so embarrassed. She must look ridiculous. At least there was no one around to see. Well, Simon, but he hardly counted. Simon let out a choking noise that might have started as laughter, and he was clearly losing the struggle to keep a smile off his face. She raised one eyebrow at him, as her aunt would have done. Well? Without saying a word, Simon walked over to her and extended a hand to help her up. He was still smiling, though, so she ignored him, instead searching around for the weapon she had dropped. When she found it, she shoved it into the ground and used it to prop herself up without Simon's help. 
As Simon looked at the gold-headed, black-hafted Ragnaris spear, his smile faded. Do you think you'll have to use that? If I do, Leah said, pushing hair out of her face, then your presence here will become unnecessary. Simon nodded seriously, and together they began walking after Helena. A few more seconds passed, during which Simon wisely kept his mouth shut. Then his wisdom ran out. Aren't you cold? he asked. Leah shoved him with the butt of her spear. The Endross outpost looked like a primitive fort. The wall was 15 feet high and made of logs with the bark still on, lashed together by brown vines. A network of square wooden towers showed above the walls, each one made of rough-hewn timbers. The entire outpost was a square, not a circle as Leah had expected, and from each corner rose a tall metal spike. It's to catch the lightning, Helena explained when Simon asked about them. Funnels them into a, you know what, I'm not supposed to talk about it. Keeps the whole place from burning down. That's all you need to know. Two travelers, a man and a woman, stood guard outside the outpost gate. The woman was dressed in what Leah would expect from one of the Badaran desert people. Her head was wrapped in a white cloth, she wore loose-fitting, pale-colored garments, and the pommel of her sword had no bare metal showing. The man dressed more traditionally for Endross travelers, in a leather breastplate and leather-padded leggings with a leather cap. A necklace of what looked like lion's claws hung down over his chest. He smiled broadly when he saw them, baring all his teeth like a maniac. Who goes there? It was a statement, not a question, delivered in the most evil, threatening tones Leah had ever heard. Without being asked, Helena announced them in a clear, ringing voice. Her Highness Leah I, Queen of Damascus, seeks an audience with the leader of this outpost. Leah wasn't seeking an audience with anyone. She was demanding the presence of whoever currently commanded this outpost so she could get her travelers back. However, Endross travelers seemed unlikely to appreciate a political distinction, so she let it slide. Simon stood to her right, and at some point he had raised the hood of his cloak. She found herself oddly comforted to have him there, even though, as she reminded herself, she still had her father's spear. Surely that would be enough to deal with anything an Endross pulled. The man lost his smile, and the woman at his side pulled a cloth away from her mouth to whisper in his ear. Her expression said she never smiled and did not expect that trend to change anytime soon. The man cleared his throat. You would be looking for Corthus then. He's the strongest around here, but you'll have to prove who you are. Leah and her companions stared at the guard. Before they reached the outpost, Leah had arranged her crown on her head, a silver circlet set with a large ruby. The gem gleamed and pulsed with its own crimson light. Hefting the spear, Leah took a step toward the guard. You want to see proof of my identity, she asked quietly. With a touch of her will, she prepared the circlet for action. It flared with a harmless red light. The crown wouldn't activate without more effort on her part, but it still looked impressive. The male guard took two steps back, then one more just to be safe. The woman stayed where she was, but she cringed from the light nonetheless. Sorry, my queen. I didn't recognize you, the man croaked. Enjoy your stay in the outpost. With a shockingly loud voice, the woman bellowed for someone on the other side of the gate to let the strangers in. Leah let the light in her crown die and strode in, following a chuckling Helena and followed by a silent Simon, who had taken the rear without being instructed. Perhaps he might grow into the bodyguard business after all. Half of it was simply looming behind his employer, letting people know he was there without saying a word. Granted, that would be easier for him if he were two feet taller, or if he had more of a reputation, or if people knew what a Valenhall traveler was. But she saw some potential. Corthus, it turned out, was in the very back of the outpost in a building that looked like a wooden amphitheater. He sat in a raised box above the stadium, which was packed with roaring Endross travelers, and, for that matter, roaring Endross creatures. Snakes slithered among the feet of the stomping fans, deftly avoiding being crushed by their masters. Something like a reptilian panther wove in and out of the shadows beneath the stadium supports, its coat occasionally crackling with blue sparks. Tiny storm drakes flashed in glittering swarms above the crowd. As Leah stepped inside, she got her first glimpse at why the travelers were all cheering. The floor in the center of the stadium was bare, packed, and sand. 
Two big men in torn leathers, presumably both Endross travelers, circled each other in the ring. They were scratched, bleeding, and unarmed. One of them roared and charged like a bull, slamming his shoulder into his unprepared opponent's middle. He didn't stop there. He kept charging until he hit the short wall marking the edge of the floor. He slammed his opponent's body into the wall, flipping the other man up and into the spectators on the other side. The watching travelers loved it. They roared and stood, some of them literally glowing with excitement. Those few shone like bolts of lightning themselves. A gong rang out, echoing through the stadium, apparently announcing the end of the fight. After about five minutes of non-stop cheering, Corthus raised a hand. He had once been a truly enormous man, but now age was catching up to him. His hair and beard were as much gray as black, and Leah suspected he hadn't had his huge gut for long. But his arms were as wide around as Simon's waist and thick with muscle. Men and women of the wastes, Corthus announced, his voice ringing like a town crier's. We have a royal visitor. A few people laughed, a handful booed, but most stayed silent. Everyone in the stadium, even the bleeding man on the floor, turned to look at Leah. Well, her parents had prepared her for nothing if not addressing the public. I would speak with you, Corthus, if you represent these people. May I approach? Without waiting for a response, she walked toward the stairs leading up to Corthus's box. Anything for my queen, he shouted, and a dozen spectators laughed. Leah walked up into the box, her guide and her bodyguard following. Up close, Corthus seemed to fill the entire box. Between his loud voice, his expansive gestures, and his physical size, he had a sense of presence that made him almost overwhelming. Also, he had a huge snake wrapped around the head of his chair, and he was leaning against it like a pillow. That was the sort of disturbing detail she was sure he used to throw people off track. So, your highness, what can I do for you? He asked smoothly as soon as she entered the box. She did not let herself be rushed. Instead, she pulled up a chair, angling it so that she could look him in the eye. I suspect you know, she said. The Endross travelers have settled here instead of seeing to their duties in the kingdom. We have an incarnation running around loose, and none of your travelers to help contain it. Corthus opened his eyes wide, as though startled. Only one incarnation. Why, this situation must be better than I'd heard. Let's all pack up and go home right now. Scattered laughter from the nearby seats. Corthus was making no effort to moderate his voice. You are all Damascan travelers. Your duty is to your country. Let us speak seriously, Corthos said, which had to have been a deliberate insult. We have no overlord above us. We cannot stand against an incarnation. What are we to do? Who is to tell us our duty? Leah let a little heat into her voice. It was appropriate at this point. I'll tell you what your duty is not, Traveler Corthus. Hiding while the citizens of Damasca die beneath the lightning of your incarnation. Corthus smiled and spread his hands, not at all put off by her words. I still see no reason why we should return to a devastated kingdom instead of staying here to secure our own lands. Because I command it, Leah said. She had intended to wait a little longer before playing that piece, but he had set her up too well. And who are you to command me, little girl? Corthus asked, amused. Leah shrugged. She raised her voice to match his, letting her words echo through the stadium. You value bravery in combat here, don't you? Let's meet in the ring. She didn't move, exactly, but she shifted so the light caught the rubies set into her crown and spear. Corthus coughed. None of that now, none of that. No one doubts the strength of Ragnaros, to be sure. A few people in the crowd murmured uneasily. But it's not the strength of your territory in question, he continued. And what is the strength of a leader, if not the strength of his men? Let's test two of yours against two of mine and see who comes out on top. He smiled as though he had finally trapped her. In that moment, she almost pitied him. Andros travelers had a reputation for being brave, vicious, and slightly insane. They were also known to be stubborn, stupid, and she supposed the best phrase would be predictably unpredictable. Leah saw nothing here to refute those beliefs. Agreed, Leah said, feigning reluctance. 
Helena, to her credit, didn't hesitate. She loosened the sword at her side, checked a couple of knives, and walked down the stairs to the center of the stadium. Simon, on the other hand, stopped and gave Leah a questioning look, which was not the image she wanted to present in public. He should have given every appearance of accepting her orders without question. You'll be up here alone, he said in a low voice, which made it a bit better. Her bodyguard should worry about leaving her unprotected. Don't be concerned, Leah said, loud enough that Corthus could hear her. I have nothing to fear from him. It was true. She could activate her crown as quickly as she could speak. She held her Ragnaros spear in her hand, and she had a few other surprises prepared in her pockets. She could handle an Andros traveler, or six. He's right there, though, Simon said, in the same low voice. Why don't we deal with him? What did he mean by deal with? Did he literally mean make a deal with the man, or was he suggesting execution, perhaps torture? With Simon, she wasn't sure. I have every confidence in your ability to deal with anyone. However, please proceed into the arena and do as your queen commands. Simon winced, but he managed to execute a fairly credible bow. And what does my queen command? Win. I can do that, he said. His cloak trailed behind him as he walked down the stairs. Corthos shouted a couple of names, and two big leather-clad brutes walked from the seats. One of them held a huge two-handed sword, and the other walked with something like a glowing blue crocodile at his side. The queen's men will be put to the test of the storm, Corthus called in his booming voice. The crowd's cheering drowned even his bellowed words. Helena, Leah noticed, rolled her eyes at being counted among the queen's men. The four combatants stood on the sand. The three Endross travelers, including Helena, looked like dogs at the ends of a series of chains, each straining to reach the others but holding themselves back. Simon, in contrast, hadn't lowered his hood or summoned his sword. He wasn't crouched or in any kind of stance Leah could recognize. He just stood there. What's wrong with your boy? Corfus asked in a whisper. He peered closer, leaning forward in his chair. Is he carrying a doll? Leah didn't respond, hoping he would take it for a mysterious confidence. From somewhere in the stadium, a gong rang out, and the Endross travelers started moving. Not faster than Simon. In an instant, he crossed the space between him and his two opponents and had one hand around each of their necks. He heaved his shoulders, tossing them three paces backwards, over the short wall and into the stands. The gong rang again, weaker this time, as though the one ringing it hadn't been quite prepared. The glowing crocodile hissed and ran up to Simon, but Simon leaned down and stared it in the eyes. He didn't do anything but stare, as far as Leah could tell, but the reptile froze. It backed away, moving in a reverse waddle until it got far enough away to scurry out of the arena entirely. Are they out of bounds? Simon called up to the box. Leah didn't think it mattered whether they were disqualified or not. They lay motionless on the steps and didn't show any signs of stirring. Corthus cleared his throat. Indeed they are, indeed they are. That was a remarkable display. Helena had her head cocked and was looking at Simon as though she had never seen him before. Leah shouted down into the ring. Simon, why don't you keep going while Corthus and I have a talk? Simon swept another bow in her direction. What do I do? Helena muttered. She was probably talking to Simon, but Leah could still hear. Relax, Simon suggested. Get a seat, have a drink. I can't keep going forever, so you can take over for me when I'm done. Leah turned to Corthus, making a point of not looking into the arena as the gong rang again. We were discussing my travelers. Yes, Corthus said absently. He seemed to be having trouble tearing his eyes off the spectacle below. This time, lightning flashed in the corner of Leah's eye before a body hurtled into the stands. Look, your highness, I'm trying to do right by my people. There's nothing they can do to help in the outside world. More important, they believe there's nothing they can do, and there's nothing more deadly to an Endross traveler than a lack of heart. The gong sounded, and Leah pretended not to notice. I could debate this with you, Corthus. I don't agree with your assessment of the situation, and I could explain why but I don't have to. She leaned closer, forcing him to look away from the fight and meet her eyes. 
It is my place to determine when and where I need my people. It is not yours to question and second-guess. Do you understand me? Not now. This was a tactic Leah had seen her father use to great effect on more than one occasion. There were two possible outcomes. Either Corthus would collapse and do what she said, or he would act out of wounded pride and... His eyes hardened and the beginnings of a sneer grew on his face. The ghost of fear chilled Leah's heart. Maybe she had miscalculated. If he stood against her here, she would have to kill him or have him killed. Either way, the Endros travelers would at best divide, at worst rebel. He started to respond, but his eyes were drawn to the arena floor. His words died. Leah followed his gaze. Simon stood, his hood down at last, surrounded by four Endros travelers and an equal number of summoned beasts. One of them was a snake as big around as a tree trunk. Its eyes glowed shining blue, and its exposed fangs sparked with lightning. Leah's breath caught. Simon had seen one of those serpents before. It had killed his mother and almost killed him. If he froze up now... Simon leaned in, looking the giant snake in the eyes, ignoring the other monsters and travelers around him. In a voice audible from her box, he announced, I've seen bigger. He held his hand out to one side and summoned his blade. The sword was awkwardly long, probably seven feet from hilt to point. It gleamed in a graceful, slightly curving arc, and Simon held it in one hand. What territory is that? Corthus asked. The gong rang. Almost as one, the four Endros travelers and their creatures blasted a wave of sparks, light, and crackling lightning, all directed inward toward Simon. For a second, Leah was blinded. When she finally blinked her eyes clear, Simon had landed with his feet on top of one of the other travelers, slamming the man chest first into the sand. With the back of his blade, he knocked a second man backwards, sending him staggering into the back wall of the arena. In the reverse stroke, he sliced a reptilian monster's wing off. It screamed and writhed on the ground. Simon leaped again, landing on the third traveler and bisecting his beast from head down to tail. The final fighter screamed and raised a sword, which flashed a bright white. Simon glanced down at the red-headed doll, Rebecca, in his left hand, and looked up at the last traveler standing. He stabbed his blade down at an angle into the sand and walked toward the man with the sword. The other man struck, but Simon swayed to one side. Then he punched the man in the face, laying him out on his back. The snake slithered up behind him, catching him apparently unawares, and Leah had to resist the urge to call out. Without turning around, Simon stepped back, slamming his heel down on the serpent's head with a wet, audible crunch. The rest of the snake's body quivered and went still. The sound of the gong floated over the utter silence in the rest of the stadium. Corthus' sneer had transformed into a look of complete disbelief. Leah raised one eyebrow. As I said, Traveler Corthus, you don't have a choice. And in case that threat wasn't blunt enough, she added, I wonder how quickly he could jump up here, given a reason. Either he somehow heard her across the distance of the arena, or else had the world's best natural timing, but Simon's shadow fell across Leah's face. He was crouched on the railing of Corthus's box, his cloak falling behind him, his outrageously long, gleaming sword held out to the side in one hand. He didn't say a word, and he didn't look toward Leah. He stared at the big Endross traveler, who was steadily losing color. Leah stood. Every traveler who is capable will come with me right now. I expect to see the rest of you in my camp outside Cana within three days' time. If you do not arrive by dawn three days hence, I won't come back. He will. Simon kept staring. Leah could have sworn that she heard the doll's distant, whispered laughter. Corthus cleared his throat. Then he did it again. Thank you, my queen. You're welcome. Only a handful of minutes later, Leah was walking back across the lightning wastes with Helena beside her. A dozen Endros travelers walked behind them, keeping a healthy distance back, and behind even them was Simon, hanging around the area like a watchful sheepdog. For some reason, Helena kept shooting glances backwards. So, that 
Simon of yours, she said at last. What about him? Leah asked. She couldn't help but feel a little pleased with herself. If Simon could repeat this performance, she could think of several scenarios where the demonstration of his talents would prove very useful indeed. That was an impressive display, Helena went on, taking a drink from her flask again. If I were fifteen years younger, I'd have caught a man like that. He'd never stand a chance. Does he belong to anyone? Well, this conversation had rapidly taken a turn into uncomfortable territory. He's not a dog, but if you're asking me if he's romantically engaged, no, I don't think so. He tends to spend most of his time alone. Helena shrugged. You can cure him of that. If I were your age, I wouldn't let him get away. Leah stared straight ahead, determined not to show any reaction. Her aunt had droned on this topic with disturbing regularity, though more often than not, she had tried to set Leah up with Alan. He does have a way with swords, I'll grant you. What other virtues does a man need? Helena nodded decisively, as though she'd settled the matter, and then she upended her silver flask over her own head. Water. Had it contained nothing more than water the entire time? Helena probably wasn't the best source of relationship advice, but she had played her role in this operation well. So had Simon, and she would need to thank him later. As they stepped through another Endross gate and back home, Leah let her thoughts slide to the next item on her list. The Endross incarnation wouldn't go down easily. Maybe Simon could help with that as well. Valor unfettered is no more than recklessness. Your bravery must be matched by an equal measure of patience, compassion, and understanding. Otherwise, it is worthless. Elysian Book of Virtues, Chapter 7, Gold Congratulations, you've survived the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Today's story was The Lightning Wastes by Will White, read by Travis Baldry. The next episode will be available on the day the Caterpillar of Ages consumes the last leaf on the Sacred Dawn Tree. Until that time, remember, you may not be watching gnomes, but they're always watching you.